Thousands of years after this fateful night, neuroscientists made two significant discoveries that help explain Peter's actions as he follows at a distance. Number one, they discovered that past experiences significantly shape our brains. Good and bad, our past has a profound impact on our minds. That's probably not all that surprising, but here's number two. They also discovered that negative experiences imprint on our minds much quicker than positive ones. Negative experiences are like Velcro. Arguments, failures, awkward interactions, or whatever take about one second to imprint on our brain. They stick like Velcro. But positive experiences work more like Teflon. A great bite of food, a funny joke, a beautiful sunset, or something like that takes much longer, around 15 seconds to stick. Think about that for a second. You have a great day, full of life-giving conversations with people you love, but then you get into a little argument walking out to your car. What are you thinking about the entire drive home? Not the 30 great conversations you had, the one guy who was having a bad day and was looking for a target to project it on. It's just how it works. And it's really bad news because it means it's really easy to ruin a great day. That is, until you're aware of it. By the end of this episode, we'll see that this can actually be really good news. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, put yourself in Peter's shoes or sandals, I guess. You do three amazing years of ministry with Jesus, full of all of these awesome adventures, but by the end of it, what do you remember? Probably the few times you let him down, because that's just how shame works. It sticks like Velcro, which means there is a good chance that God thinks about Peter a lot differently than Peter thinks about himself. Or take that a step further, there's a good chance God thinks about you a lot differently than you think about yourself, which is fantastic news and the thing this episode is all about. So let's go. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. This is part six of seven in the after effects of the meal that changed everything. The night's chill begins to leave Peter's limbs. He listens to the peripheral conversations, trying to seem uninterested in those around him. He only listens for news of the proceedings inside. He didn't notice how cold the night was as he tracked Rabbi and the guards. It is only now that the feeling is beginning to return to his face and hands that he notices it. The warmth of the fire coats his skin in a comfort that he certainly doesn't feel in his soul. His desperate attempt to go unnoticed doesn't last long. Just outside his field of vision, a young servant girl moves rapidly toward him. He notices the flicker of movement and turns his head just in time to see recognition pass over her face. You are with the Galilean, Jesus. Blood rushes to Peter's face. He must think quickly. The crowd was too eager for violence to take such an accusation lightly. The men around him look skeptically towards Peter. I do not know this man. I do not know this man. That's a bit much, Peter, he thinks to himself. The girl apparently shared his surprise and turned back to her chores. 
They both knew his word held more value than hers in any meaningful way. Both also knew he was lying, and not very well. But she could do nothing about it. The tension broken, the other men by the fire turned disinterestedly back to their own conversations. Peter breathes again, yet his chest is still tight. I do not know this man. Really, Peter? You've been with the rabbi for years, witnessing miracles, escaping danger, and you couldn't even find it in yourself to talk openly to a servant girl. She has no power to do anything to you. You need not fear her. You failed. Again. Shame, his old companion, creeps up from whatever dark cavern he has been hiding. He closes his eyes tightly. Tonight's failure reminds him of a night two years ago he has desperately tried to forget. Peter opens his eyes. The other eleven stare back at him. They sit on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has told them to go ahead while he prays alone. He will meet them on the other side. The darkness seeps into every fiber of their clothes and every grain of the boat. They have fought a storm all night, rain and wind pelting them, and by the time the fourth watch strikes, the men feel their muscles giving way. They plead for Peter to turn back. Peter, this is madness, yells John. If you don't turn this boat around, we're throwing you overboard, screams Andrew. Turn around, Peter, please, the other men join in. Rabbi told us to cross the sea, so we're going to cross the sea. Peter stubbornly persists. But even Peter can feel the exhaustion set into his bones. The other men move heavily around, desperate to keep the storm at bay. Suddenly, a light cuts through the darkness behind them. Peter can only see it as it illuminates his friends before him. He can see the terror on their faces. What is that? It's a man. It can't be. On the water like that? It's a spirit. Peter slowly turns, terrified of the specter. Take heart. It is I... Do not be afraid. The terror does not subside. Peter thinks, Rabbi, but how? Steals himself and says with a boldness he does not feel. If it is really you, tell me to come out on the water. Peter sees the word leave his mouth and wishes he could grab them and sink them to the depths. What foolishness is this? The silence that followed lasted much longer than he wished. The others looked at him as if he were Jonah coming back from the whale. Finally, come. Peter recognizes that what happens next determines much about the course of his life. He moves with strange confidence to the side of the boat, swings his legs over the side, and places them in the frothing water. He closes his eyes and hesitates. Peter has spent his life on the sea. He can swim, but he also knows the sea. He can't swim well enough to survive this storm. He feels the cold water churn around his feet, soaking his tunic and cloak, water and wood. The collectively held breath of his companions, the sting of the salt air. He lowers himself from the boat. The world stops. Suddenly, Peter cannot hear the storm, nor feel the wind. The astonished voices of them, men behind him, echo distantly. He opens his eyes, and the waves have slowed. He looks in front of him and sees only light and the rabbi, smiling. Beneath him, impossibly, he feels a firm, solid surface. He takes a step gingerly and cautiously, still solid, 
He takes another step, another, another. He laughs and smiles at Rabbi. Rabbi laughs back. But then he feels a small, cold drop on his cheek, a slight breeze in his beard, and the spell is broken. The sound, wind, waves rush back into focus, crashing and roaring around him. He breaks the look with the rabbi to take account of his surroundings. Fear grips his heart. What was I thinking? He takes the next step, but the solidness beneath him has turned cold. He begins to sink. He looks at rabbi with panic, merely feet away from him. Lord, save me! He feels a firm, solid hand grasp his arm, pulling him to his feet. Peter cannot look at him. His face burns with embarrassment. Rabbi must be disappointed. Peter didn't trust him. He should have just stayed in the boat. He closes his eyes to fight back tears. When he opens them, he is in the courtyard again. He feels a cold trail on his cheek as the slight breeze caresses it. He wipes the tear away and looks toward the spot where Rabbi stood. He can feel a cold hand grip his chest. He thinks only of failure. This is how it works. The reality is Peter did a decent job following Jesus, even at this moment. I mean, yes, he took his eyes off Jesus, saw the storm, got scared and started to sink. But do you know what else he did? Had the gumption to believe Jesus and climb out of a boat in the middle of a raging storm. And he took several steps walking on water. Who else can say they've done that? I just have a feeling Peter didn't remember it that way. How do I know? Because he was a human, and so am I. See, I I think when Jesus went to go pick Peter up and then walk him back to the boat, he had something of a smile on his face. Hey, you just climbed out of a boat in the middle of a storm kind of smile. Uh, Hey, we're getting there. You're learning how to trust me more and more every day kind of a smile. A wait and see the man of God you are going to be a couple of years from now kind of smile. But negative experiences stick like Velcro, which is why I'm pretty confident Peter didn't remember it that way. Instead, he remembered how he let the rabbi down, how he couldn't help but get distracted as he walked on water through the middle of a storm. And now here he is in the middle of this crazy night, failing Jesus left and right. So where do you think his mind is? Probably not in a very good place. And it's about to get worse. Peter moves from the fire. After the incident with the servant girl, he realizes it's no longer safe there. He's too exposed, too central. The cold coats his body as he steps away from the warmth. He regrets the move, but his safety is more important than comfort. He crosses to the front portico, just by the entrance of the house. He can see Jesus inside, calmly facing his accusers. The trial moves with a predetermined precision. Peter wishes he could hear the words streaming out of Caiaphas's twisted mouth. Too many people with too much drink and joy drown out the proceedings inside. He stops, unsure where to go next. He stands staring at the ornate columns of the portico. He should be feeling something. He is angry, confused, scared, even hungry. But the soul has been drained from his body. He feels only dull numbness pulsing from the center of his being. He is lost no longer caring about anything, 
but avoiding the stares and whispers around him. Then he sees her. This is the third time the girl has passed by him, coming around the corner again on another loop. She moves with the preoccupation of a servant at work, but Peter senses there are other motives in the repetitions. He considers moving to throw her off the trail, but his body and mind cannot find the energy to do so. She is back, a fourth time, and Peter is sure that she recognizes him. Peter stares at her, ensuring that they would make eye contact. She looks up. Peter sees the change in her eyes before it ripples to the rest of her face. Peter knows she knows. He breathes in sharply. The girl pauses to process what the next moments will bring her. She has been working for Master for many years, most of her young life. This broken man before her could provide the opportunity for favor with Master. Peter senses the ambition and turns to walk back towards the courtyard. This man is with Jesus of Nazareth. Her high voice echoes off the walls, freezing Peter mid-step. Peter feels the eyes bore into him. Suddenly, Peter cares very much about what is going on around him. He becomes acutely aware of how many men are present. Peter is usually quick on his feet, a comeback notched and ready to fly in a moment. But he is empty tonight. He thinks back to a pivotal conversation with Rabbi just a few months earlier. Who do people say I am? Peter and James stop their good-natured debate about the best way to weave a net when they hear Rabbi's question. The effortless way Rabbi can change the whole conversation is breathtaking to Peter. He can feel the eyes of the other eleven men on him. Peter knows this question was pointed his way. You are the Christ. Peter is just as shocked at the answer as the others. It had sprung from his mind without any warning. Yet he cannot unsay it. Rabbi smiles widely. Peter breathes again. Peter has not quite been able to get the hang of answering Rabbi with any confidence. He is glad to see that Rabbi is clearly pleased with this one. Blood and flesh did not reveal this to you, Simon. Because of this, you will be named Peter, for upon this rock I will build my church. Mysterious words. Peter doesn't know what to think. But Rabbi isn't done. Peter, only half listening, hears him tell the others that in order to bring God's kingdom, they must go to Jerusalem. While there, Jesus will be captured, tortured, and killed. Peter now gives the group his full attention. God forbid that, Lord. I won't let that happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's confidence deflates. Rabbi has been tough on him before, but this devastates Peter. He is confused and hurt. Rabbi just changed my name. I thought I was to be the new Israel. Now he calls me Satan? Misery loves company. That's true in community settings, but it's also true of our own thoughts. There is a constant battle being fought in our minds, and as we've already talked about, our minds have a negativity bias. So mistakes stick like Velcro, meaning they work like dominoes. One leads to another and another, and before we know it, we end up in a dark place. Peter's in deep here, and he keeps digging a deeper and deeper hole. He's miserable. He's in desperate need of a reset button, but once again, it's not going to happen. Rumor flies quickly through the courtyard, shrill cries and excited whispers. One of Jesus' disciples is here. The murmurs tell Peter it's time to move. Self-preservation motivates even the most apathetic. Peter makes his way to the courtyard entrance. He knows what he must do. Start over. 
Whatever the last three years have meant, it clearly ends tonight. Maybe he can go back to fishing in the anonymous life of an ordinary Israelite. Your accent betrays you. How does he know what my accent is? I've barely spoken. The crowd begins to press on him, shouting and pointing. Peter desperately tries to plow his way out. But the mass of humanity surrounds him. Peter sighs, closes his eyes, and lowers his head. He knows he has to say something. Silence won't get him anywhere. He curses himself as he says, I do not know the man. A rooster crows in the distance. If it's possible for a sound to wound, this shrill cry twists a dagger in Peter's sides. He remembers mere hours before Rabbi's words. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. All memory and words fail Peter. His grand declarations and bluster fall about him, a mirror to his lack of courage and his lying tongue. He pushes through the crowd who have collectively moved on at his strong denial. He finds a stump of an olive tree and sits. He closes his eyes, hoping this nightmare will end soon. He will wake up in his home and begin preparing for a day on the sea, laughing to himself at the absurdity of his dream. The crowd's tone has shifted. Something has happened inside. Peter opens his eyes to watch the crowd parting like the sea for Moses. Suddenly, for the briefest of moments, Peter can see Jesus. His rabbi looks intently at Peter. The crowd and the noise have slowed and softened. It is just Jesus and him, like that time on the sea. Everything around him blurred and muted. Peter feels the pain deep, but he cannot turn away. A light shines into the dark mess of his soul, deep secrets and hurts exposed into the painful light, an antiseptic stinging and cleansing. Peter feels oddly comforted by it. Then, as quickly as Jesus appeared in the crowd, he is gone. The men move in swift undulations through the threshold of the courtyard, ushering Jesus out of sight. With the crowd goes the warmth that comes with it, and the cold once again coats Peter's skin. Peter has nothing left. He doesn't know what the next move is, but he can't help feeling that that was the last time he would see his rabbi. I've read this story for years. Every time I get to this part, I always wonder the same thing. If Jesus could call a quick time out and pull Peter aside to talk to him for a few minutes, what would he say? I mean, Peter's reached rock bottom by this point. Everything he has worked to build has come crumbling down. He's failed repeatedly. And Jesus must be so disappointed. I grew up picturing Jesus ripping into Peter. Are you kidding me, Peter? After everything I've done for you, you're just going to abandon me like that? But here's the thing. The more I learn about Jesus, I just don't think that would be his response. Instead, with nothing but love in his heart, I think he would say, I know, Peter. I get it. It's really hard to be human. And in fact, that's why I'm doing this. You don't understand what's happening yet, but one day you will. I'm about to finish this thing once and for all. I'm going to set you free because your story is far from 
over. We've got work to do. And I'm not looking for a bunch of well-behaved Christians who can follow orders. I'm looking for free men and women who realize how much I've done for them and are ready to help others realize the same thing. But Peter still doesn't get that and won't for several more days. So instead of allowing that beautiful truth to transform his life, here's what happens next. The colors and sound wash over Peter. The glint of the priests, precious metals woven through their garments, the ugly noise of the crowd demanding violence. It is all too much. He closes his eyes and tries to shut it all out. One final roar tells him all he never wanted to know. Jesus, his rabbi, will be killed. Peter, lost, runs out of the courtyard, pushing his way through the people, ignoring curses and shouts at his rudeness. He has lost all sense of his surroundings and politeness. He needs to be alone. Desperately, he reaches the edge of the courtyard. As he crosses the threshold, he notices the blackness of the night beginning to crack under the soft blue light of dawn. A sliver cresting on the horizon beyond the walls of the city. The night is starting to end. He has stopped running. And all he was running from, the violence, the denial, the truth, finally reaches him. The weight of his actions and words bend him over double, crumbling the barriers he had constructed over many, many years. The waters finally breaching the dam. All alone, in the early light of the coming day, Peter weeps. Life is beautiful. And the fact that we're still breathing is incredible. The problem is, positive experiences take a longer time to imprint on our brain. And let's be honest, we hardly ever give them enough time to do so. So it becomes really easy to forget all the good and get caught up in the bad, especially when we're going through a difficult season. I said at the beginning of this episode that this is actually great news and here's why. Now we know why we are so prone to get down on ourselves or be pessimistic about life. Because the reality is, Peter could have spent that night counting his blessings. I mean, he was certainly in a dark section of his journey, but he was still on his journey. He was on the way to becoming who God wanted him to be. It was a difficult but essential ingredient in the mix, and there was never a moment throughout that entire night when Jesus ever rethought the seat at the table he set for Peter. Because Jesus gives us permission to be messy. In fact, it's kind of the entire point. Life is crazy and hard and confusing, and Jesus knows all of that. He knew how hard it was going to be to be human and went to great lengths to do something about it, which means we can combat the negativity bias. How? By fixing our eyes on the good, repeatedly. By forgetting what is behind and straining forward towards what is ahead, by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. I love when science catches up with scripture. Today we can actually understand at a neurological level the truth behind the things Paul wrote in those letters thousands of years ago. What we dwell on molds us. Maybe life isn't as bad as we think and maybe we aren't as far gone as our negativity bias has convinced us we are. 
We're okay. You're okay. Jesus knows and still has a seat at the table for you. So do what Peter couldn't do in this moment. Throw off everything else. Fix your eyes on the beauty of this truth and press on with love. Because here's the best part of Peter's story. It may look bleak, but it isn't over. Far from it. In fact, the table is about to become more compelling than ever in our final episode of season one, The Table Again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SIS Project.